Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm Joshua Morris. Each week on this podcast, I'm joined by some of our fantastic writers and reporters here at Tez as they share the stories they think should be in the spotlight that week. A little bit later on this episode, I'm joined once again by senior editor Gronja Hallahan as we discuss the rise in Strep A cases and an exclusive, rare interview with Nick Gibb. But first, we have a full house to discuss today's news stories. In no particular order, welcome back Matilda Martin, John Roberts, and Rodri Morgan. Rodri, I, I think you were mentioning to me earlier, this is your, your second podcast? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Again, talking about the schools, Bill. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, yeah, it's a good time to have you back on as we are going to start with that story that you broke on the TES website this week, and that is that the schools bill will not progress in Parliament. I guess we've been covering the schools bill most of the year now. It's been kind of a cornerstone of context for a lot of the education policy articles that we've covered this year. But now, as we can hear from Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, it's no longer going ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I can confirm that the, the schools bill um, will not progress in the third session. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's been um, a, lot, a lot of things that we've had to, to focus on, and the need to provide economic stability and tackle the cost of living uh, means that the, t- the parliamentary time has definitely been reprioritised on that. And we all know that we had to do that because of the, um, you know, the pandemic aftershocks, but also the war in Ukraine, and we needed to support uh, families. Um, however, we do remain... Um, committed to uh, the objectives, the very many important objectives uh, that underpinned the bill, and we will be prioritising some aspects uh, of of the bill as well to see uh, what we can do. A lot of the school's white paper is is being implemented. Uh, it didn't require uh, legislation uh, in many cases, uh, but we know that there's been interest in, particularly in, in a couple of areas around. Uh, uh, legislating for children not in school and a register. I know that's been something the committee has been um, pushing and uh, let's just say we've heard uh, your concerns and it is uh, definitely a priority. Uh, first of all then, Rodri, how did that story break? So it was quite late on Tuesday night. Gillian was due to appear at the Education Select Committee on the Wednesday and um, I got a tip from a contact that it was likely that a school's bill was going to be axed in its current form, which is essentially the tip I've been chasing for basically since I've joined TES. Um, because like you say, it's a piece of legislation that was kind of dictating where a loss of education policy was heading. Um, so this contact put me, put me on to some re- material that they'd received, which, which outlined the plans um, for what for what Gillian was going to talk about. And uh, yeah, I got the, got the tweet up and then outlined some of the things that off the basis of this information we were expecting to hear the next day. And thankfully it was, it was all accurate. As, as you said, it's, it's been there in the background all of this time. Why has the bill kind of fallen at this, at this hurdle? So the bill was initially launched in May and it's been held up at various points. Um, I won't, bore you with the full sort of lifespan of what it's been through, but essentially it's been uh, it's been pulled apart more than once in its journey through the Commons and the Lords, uh, and it was stuck at its third reading um, in the House of Lords. Uh, and in September, we learned that it had actually been pulled from its parliamentary calendar. Um, so, so that's why it's kind of been quagmired in 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 this process. 
And yeah, I think um, the other the other thing to say, I think, is, uh, as um, Rodri's alluded to, is it kind of it almost was in trouble from the start. The it so so it, and it, as you said, Josh, it's been the kind of um, the big thing for policy. So before the schools bill, there was a schools white paper which kind of set out the government's policy aims, and then the schools bill is the kind of the legislation they need to get that through. Um, and this, the main bit was this idea that we were going to move to an entirely multi-academy trust-led system. Um, and the way that they, and to do that, they wanted to create an oversight system of regulation, a, a new way of the, the government having oversight of what academy trusts do. And this legislation, when it, when it first came out, um, was kind of rounded on by the sector and by the House of Lords to such an extent that they pulled great swathes of it and, mm. we, and said, oh, we were going to redraft it all. So almost from the get-go, it was kind of on its knees. And then obviously we've had this crazy time this year where we've seen three prime ministers in many months. And we were saying this on, on almost every podcast, but five education secretaries this year. And so in a way, we've been kind of waiting to see what would happen, but we haven't had a stable bit of government. Um, so yeah, so in a way, this, this maybe shows that we've, this is the first time we've had a stable, stable government and an education secretary in place to actually make a decision for the first time in a couple of months. I think one one other thing just to just to add to that, just to expand on what John's initial point was of it being in trouble from the start, is that I think what it was likely to have been initially seen as was a catch-all policy to fix education. It was so wide-ranging in terms of its policy objectives that it was always going to run into trouble once it started coming under direct criticism for its individual parts. Um, and I think ultimately, as John said, especially with regard to things like map regulation, you know, we still have this 2030 target, supposedly, of all schools being in strong academy trust. And um, we'll wait to see what the government does with that. But yeah, it's, uh, mm. it, was, it was kind of panned by the sector throughout its journey. Well, I mean, that's kind of a good point you make there. It, I mean, John, is, is it completely gone or are they kind of grabbing pieces here to try and drag forwards? Yeah, so we've had, a, we've had a bit of a steer. So, I mean, obviously the government sort of academies have been the, uh, a kind of a, a core policy of all the conservative governments of the last 12 years, really. So I wouldn't expect them to, you know, any massive change of tack in terms of wanting schools to be an academy trust. But to what extent is the 2030 target a top priority? To what extent is multi-academy trusts, Gillian Keegan or, or Nick Kibbs, Nick Gibbs' priority is a really good question, um, and and I guess we'll we'll see that in the, in the in the weeks and months ahead. I think there is a sense that it is, whilst it might still be the same direction of travel, there might not be the, the same urgency to get schools into multi academy trusts as there was under under Nadim Zahawi. Um, but the other thing is, we've been given a steer of this, as as Rodri rightly said, there was lots of different proposals across various different policy areas in this bill, and some of those I think are seen as really pressing and quite kind of have quite a lot of support. And the DfE have kind of indicated in the committee, um, Gillian Keegan said that they were still keen to create a register for children not in school. And this is something that was around before COVID and has become more pressing as an issue after the pandemic. And there's a, a concern that nationally and at local authority level, we don't necessarily have kind of data on exactly who isn't being educated regularly in school. Um, and then there are several other elements that they've indicated that they um, that they want to pursue, um, cracking down on illegal schools. Um, Ofsted inspects the settings where people are effectively running a school but aren't registered as a school. Um, 
Ofsted have said for a long time that they need more power to be able to in, inspect and investigate these cases. So that's one. And then there's a whole raft of things they want to do on being able to clamp down on private schools with safeguarding failures. And they've talked about um, expanding teacher misconduct rules. So we've kind of indicated to us that they that they want to pursue all of those. But it's not a hard or fast commitment. And I think they sort of said something along the lines of like when the, when the um, legislative timetable allows us to do so, which is the definition of kicking the can down the road, really. But then nevertheless, they are priority areas. There's some other stuff in there. Like um, they were going to come down hard on attendance and demand that all schools had um, attendance policies, a national framework for when when parents should be fined for, for their child not attending school. All of that was going to be put on a statutory footing and there's no sense that it is now. So there's definitely going to be a lot of stuff that they were going to do through legislation that won't now happen. Um, and the things I've mentioned, they've said are priorities that they want to progress, but exactly how and when remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I get the sense that they're kind of a lot of this is about moving away from targets because I guess there, there's there's always the the chance that you miss them, which is which is something that we talked about on the podcast last week. Matilda was talking to Jack Worth on the podcast, and they were talking about how the government had missed thirteen out of its seventeen teacher trainee targets this year, and now we're also hearing that all appeals against unsuccessful accreditation bids by initial teacher training providers have been rejected by the Department for Education. Matilda, don't those two facts together kind of make for pretty grim reading? Yeah, definitely. And I think from conversations I've had with providers and also, um, you know, big big players in the sector over the last, last week since that data came out, they really were expecting the appeals process to have a different outcome. Um, I think they kind of hoped that the data would shock the department a little bit into not wanting to cut off any possible provision. Um, and yet, obviously yesterday, the news came through, I think at about four o'clock, that all providers' appeals had been rejected. Um, we're still not entirely sure how many providers appealed the results. So we know after the second round that about 68 um, providers were going to be lost after 2024. But we don't really know exactly how many of those, you know, had decided to, to appeal. So we're unsure about that. But I think what we're trying to find out at the moment as well is, you know, why providers have, have had those appeals rejected. Um, and I think, you know, we've heard a lot from, from sector leaders. So yesterday, obviously, we had um, initial reactions from the executive director of, of USIT, uh, James Noble Rogers, who said that they were surprised and disappointed about yesterday's news. Um, and definitely reiterated again the feeling that the process was seriously flawed from the beginning. Um, I know that there were delays to the deadline, which was back in October. And obviously this whole process has been, I would say, played with delays. Um, and there was a 500 word limit, which I think after the huge amount of, of material that they had to provide um, to apply for accreditation in the first place, many providers felt very, very limited um, and felt it was kind of very unfair if they were trying to, trying to appeal on many different issues. Um, I think back in, in, well, actually back in September now, when the second round of accreditation uh, results came out, 
um, there was some kind of murmuring in the sector that perhaps there could be legal challenges on the horizon um, against the DfE because of, you know, their decisions. Um, so that's something we'll be keeping an eye on, I think, over the next few weeks or so. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think, you know, especially we had an, an EPI um, analysis come out yesterday about, you know, the concerns of those lost uh, provision for 2024. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting couple of months, I think. Um, and also each month now we'll be getting the new uh, teach training applications data through. So we'll be keeping an eye on that as well. One thing that struck me about it was the, the 500 word thing. Um, I, when you think about what a big process this is, this is basically established teacher training providers who might have been doing it for, in university cases, maybe decades, being told that they're not fit for purpose to carry on in the sector, believing that they are and been given 500 words to state their case. That sounds more like a word limit for why you want to go on a holiday or win a car, not, not kind of um, a public policy. You know, I, I think, that's, um, I think yeah. that's kind of fed into this idea that I, there was a kind of a sense, I think, in the sector that the DfE wanted to reduce the number of providers and that this the appeals process didn't seem very inviting. And then the outcomes, with them all being rejected, is, is only going to kind of fuel that perception, I think. That's the thing that kind of struck me yesterday. Definitely. And I think, so we had, um, as well as Jane Sable Rogers, we had some reaction from Emma Hollis um, of Nasbit. And yeah, she's very much kind of reflecting what, what you've just, just raised there, John. So, you know, she's kind of said the questions need to be raised about the fairness, the transparency of the process. And I think another, you know, place of anger here is that, you know, the DfE has been told by numerous people in the sector that there was kind of restrictive guidelines and lack of information around this. And yet kind of, you know, there doesn't really seem to have been any sort of response to that. Um, so, yeah, they definitely feel like, you know, lessons have to be learned um, from this process. But, you know, the DfE seem to be pretty kind of, you know, they've, they've already said there isn't going to be another accreditation round before um, the, the new framework comes into place in 2024. So... We'll be keeping an eye on on those cold spots that we've identified in analysis in the past, but also, you know, what the sector's movements will be next. Thank you all for joining me today. We've covered a lot. And like, you, like you've just said there, Matilda, quite a lot to, to look ahead to in both of these stories here. So listeners, if you feel like you've missed out on anything here or you'd like some further reading, these stories, as always, are available on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Uh, Matilda, John, Rodri, thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Josh. Now joining me from our analysis team is Senior Editor Gronja Hallahan. Gronja, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm good, thank you. We're on a run of podcast episodes now. I think it's been three in a row, hasn't it? Yeah, I do keep manipulating the situations so I get to be on the podcast because that's what, that's what I like my Fridays to be full of. Well, good to have you back, whether or not you manipulated the situation to be here. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to take a look at an interview that our editor John Severs did with Nick Gibb. But the story we're starting with today is quite a serious one. As many of you will know, there have been a number of tragic deaths of school children from complications caused by invasive group A strep. Gronya, I'm sure many schools are wondering what they can do to try and keep their pupils safe. 
first of all, what is Strepe? Why is it dangerous? And is there data to show that cases are on the rise? Yes. Yeah, so, of course, this is the most important question. Like, are cases really up compared to previous years? And when we look at the, the numbers of people who are contracting strep A, then, yeah, that's def- it's definitely true that there's more cases of it. And when there are more cases, you'll naturally get more severe cases of it and severe reactions to it, which is, why which is the explanation of why there are more, more deaths this year. Um, and if you read the article, we've got a, a graph that explains what the difference is between 2022-23 versus 2017. But what you'll notice when you look at that graph is that during 2020 and 2021, there were far fewer cases. And that makes sense. And that's part of the, why, we brought, why we're in this problem is because of the pandemic and during lockdown. For many children, this is their first or their first for a long time proper winter flu season. And we wouldn't normally see this many cases, apparently, at this time of year. It's because that the, they haven't built up that, a, a, a robust immune system like they would do at any other time. That's yeah, why I mean, we're seeing this problem now. In September, when it was all back to school, the amount of people I know just anecdotally that got ill at that time, I got ill. It's, uh, yeah, everything felt like it was all going around at that point. And it's, it's like you said, because they've been out of school and they've come back now with slightly not as well-prepared immune systems and that's why cases are up. So is it just a matter of there being more cases? It's not, it's not more dangerous than it has been before. It's, it's that there are more cases. No, and we do have an expert explaining why it doesn't necessarily mean this is a more dangerous strain in the piece and they, they go through the reasons why that, that's true and it's not something that we should be panicking about. It's just a matter of there's more cases. Um, people's immune systems aren't as built up as they would be normally because of lockdowns. And this is just part of the part of the process of getting back to normal. And like you said, anecdotally, um, within my my own children, my children's friendship groups, and it, in our family, we've just cancelled a, a birthday party for this this Saturday because the birthday girl has come into contact with with a child in her nursery who's got strep. So. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of it about and um, schools are obviously having to react to this. Yeah, so then I guess that is the big question. What can schools do to try and keep their pupils safe? Okay, so Dan Worthy wrote this article. He got out there and he spoke to some MAT CEOs about what they're doing in their schools. And they said, really, this is very similar to the reaction that they had to have to COVID. So things that they're doing... Good hand hygiene. Remember washing your hands and singing happy birthday? We're back to that again. So what they're trying to get all their pupils and staff to do is when they arrive at the start of the school day, you wash your hands. After you use the toilet, you wash your hands. Should be doing that anyway. After you play, wash your hands. Before, wash your, before you eat, wash your hands. After you eat, wash your hands. Before you get to leave the school at the end of the school day, you're washing your hands. So there's a lot of um, hand washing going on. Invest in some decent soap and hand cream and then other key advice that's come from the guidance that's 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 been issued to all schools that children and adults should be covering their mouth and nose with a tissue when they're sneezing and coughing and to wash your hands after sneezing and coughing you shouldn't spit again i just think that's good advice shouldn't be spitting and just taking extra care because of the nature of strep this is where we i think we really differ from the covid guide guidelines is if you've got a scratch or a, or a scrape or a wound or bites, I assume they mean like insect bites rather than people bites, um, make sure that they're probably cleaned and covered 
because this isn't the wear strip can get, get dangerous when it gets into the skin. So that's one of the things that about breaching the skin barrier as a portal of entry for the organism is very important. So we must make sure that those cut are cleaned and covered. And they've also told staff what to look out for. So it's all very well doing all this preventative stuff, but how do you know when something's actually going wrong? Um, when you've got a high fever that is not settling, severe muscle aches or pain in one area of the body, a spreading redness on the skin, breathlessness or having trouble breathing, excessive sleepiness or irritability. If you've got those symptoms, then you need to call a GP or 111 immediately and seek professional medical advice. That's not going online and Googling it. That is calling and going to see an expert because that means something's wrong. So what can schools do if there is an outbreak? So schools need to be working with the UKHSA, that's the United Kingdom Health Security Agency. And they'll give you the advice that you need to take for the outbreak. Obviously, it's going to vary from school to school. But this is something that Nick Gibb was talking about when he appeared on GB News um, this week. And he was talking about looking at the option of giving antibiotics, even when children aren't sick. So like in anticipation of them possibly getting sick, giving antibiotics. But that's just something that they're, they're looking into. It's not, it's not the guidance yet. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking then of Nick Gibb, that's, uh, that moves us quite nicely onto our next story. I guess Nick Gibb seems kind of like this, uh, he's like a character in the education sector. He's an outspoken one, but sometimes elusive character. But this week, uh, our editor, John Severs, had an exclusive and rare sit-down interview with Nick Gibb. Gronio, this one came out this morning. I've not had the chance to read it fully yet. But I think you have, and you said you've got some favourite quotes from the article, right? I have, and I'm going to let you pick which ones you want to hear. So Nick Gibb, for full disclosure, I am a bit of a Nick Gibb fan. I really like Nick Gibb. I, he, he retweeted from my test blogs. So, you know, I think he's a ever hero. Since <laughs> yep, ever since. I think he's great. And he used to come along to Research Ed when I was speaking at Research Ed. I think I've got all the time for Nick Gibb. Thank you, Nick Gibb, making sure my children can read properly. That's... That's how, how I feel about him. But I've given you a choice of my favourite quotations. So I think this piece, you read it. And I, I was laughing like, as I was reading along. Like he, he's got a couple of really good singers in there. But I'm going to let you pick your, the ones you want to hear. I've got Nick Gibb on low aspirations. Nick Gibb on narrowing the curriculum. Nick Gibb on same. And Nick Gibb on forcing through change. All right. Well, let's start with the obvious one which is Nick Gibb on fame. I really want to hear yeah. what he has to say about that. Oh, I'm glad you picked one. Okay, so he said, I came into politics because of ideas, not because I want to sell books or go on I'm a celebrity. This feeds into the point about how no one knows much about me. It's because I'm not really interested in being famous. <laughs> I mean, that feels quite clearly like a dig at a certain other politician there. You know the meme of the boy who's like, oh, did you just say that? I feel like that's what we need around that yeah. quote. Yes. Thank you, Nick Gibb. I think that's a, it's definitely a, a very pointed and amusing dig. Yeah. I mean, and also it, it does tell quite a lot about him. I think I, I did have a quick read of the article at the very beginning. I, I noticed John was talking about this idea that, um, that Nick Gibb, it kind of, he really just wants to get on with his job, right? He doesn't want the spotlight on him. But he also he also feels like really he's the only person who can do that that job, right? 
Shall we? Does that mean you want to hear Nick Gibb on winning arguments? Yes. Yeah, I think that leads nice, quite nicely into that one, right? Okay. So John asked him. He was talking about uh, whether or not to uh, that sort of balance of pushing yourself forward and get, like delegating, like letting other people do things. And um, he says, so you'd rather lose the argument yourself than trust someone else to do it. John said, "Oh, I don't think I would lose it." He replies. And he smiles. He definitely, definitely has this idea that he is, he's the, he has very specific ideas about education and feels now perhaps he's the only person with the experience and know-how to get those ideas through, right? I mean, we have this constant churn of education secretaries, none of whom, think about the ones we've had, like the last, even the last 10 that we've had, have any of them really had that sort of experience? industry knowledge of education to the same extent that Nick Gibbs got. Don't think they have. I think he's the, a really good argument for having somebody in power for a long time, like in charge, overseeing it, looking at it with a long-term plan, like that can not just plan for the next year or the next two years. Like I feel like Nick Gibbs got ideas for the next 20 years, you know, that, and that's what we need, yeah. isn't it? To really make change. So, like, and to push the important changes through, you've got somebody who can see that long-term, okay, I've got, I've got the end in sight, how am I going to get there, rather than just firefighting all the time and thinking about winning the next election. Like, it's, I don't think he thinks like that. I think he's very much, this is what I'm going to do for the foreseeable future. If we were going to hand over the Department for Education to an apolitical party, like take, take politics out of it, I'd let Nick Gibb be in charge. I talked to John Roberts about this a bit when we first saw the new kind of ministerial team come in uh, on the podcast, actually. And one of the things we kind of noticed or picked up on is that we had this kind of Nick Gibbs ideas are very well known in education, but also we had kind of Robert Halfen coming in. We obviously had Gillian Keegan coming in and there's kind of like a, there's kind of opposite ideas there almost. Does, does Nick Gibb represent stability in education? Is that one of the reasons he's been brought in or does he represent these ideas in particular? Do you think that it's a bit like the A-team? <laughs> right, so they've all got different skills. So Nick Gibb, he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to phonics and curriculum planning and assessments. And then you've got Robert Halfon who really is really experienced and really knowledgeable about um, like education for careers and vocational options and other the, the routes that children need to take to get into industry and how schools and and businesses can work better together. And obviously then you've got Jillian Keegan who's really knowledgeable because she herself has you know, she did apprenticeship and she knows all about about that side of things and you know she comes with her own knowledge. You know, they're like they've all got their own different specialities and that's why I think you need to have a balance of that. Nobody can know everything, can they? Well, talking about kind of Nick Gibbs' ideas, his areas of expertise, what he's known for, uh, you had another quote there that was on narrowing the curriculum. Okay, so he is one of the things that he's criticised for is that because of the changes that he made, the curriculum narrowed. Now, no, with my Nick Gibb fan hat on, I'd say that. He's, he's the mastermind behind the EBAC. He's the one that was saying we shouldn't know the curriculum and make sure that children can do French and German. But the, the quote that I've got here isn't about that. He's, 
he says, I'm always surprised and disappointed when I hear schools, certainly some primary schools, saying, we're just focusing on English and maths in years five and six because that is what we are being tested on, he says. That is not my objective. It is not government policy. And actually, it will hinder getting good results in English and maths. It is a mistake to have a reductionist approach to education. And I think at that point, yes, yes, it is. We shouldn't be doing this. That's it, exactly. And, you know, there's a there's a really good argument that doing a, a broad range of subjects lifts your English and maths results. And this is something that I'm a, a bit obsessive about. Like, I, I really like looking at the data behind this. But I think that it is a mistake just to focus on English and maths. And I think that it's tricky because they are, the SATs are just on English and maths. But what's the alternative? Like, do we not test English and maths? Do we test them on all the subjects? That would be ridiculous. Like, it's it's a tricky thing to, to stop schools from doing. I think there's other things you can do. But anyway, I thought that was a an interesting quote. and really getting at the heart of what I think puts a lot of teachers off teaching as well. When you talk to primary school teachers, they hate the fact that for two years you're just doing English and maths with your year fives and sixes. They don't enjoy it. That's not why people go into teaching. So, yeah, I, 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 I was clapping along to that one. I like that one. <laughs> I, I think that quote there kind of encapsulates the kind of idea of this this interview which is breaking down i guess some of the the mischaracterizations of of things that nick gibb has said or he thinks or he has tried to enact in education so yeah if you do want to get a better picture of who nick gibb is what he actually stands for what he actually thinks about these policies this interview that john's done with him is a great is a great article to go and to go and check out absolutely yes it is well, Gronya, thank you again, as always, for joining me again this week. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. No, thank you for asking me. I, oh, I don't think I won't be doing this with you this time next week, though, because I start my Christmas holiday. Yeah, I think I might be off as well from next week. So we're likely to have a bit of a Christmas podcast break and then we'll come back in the new year to cover everything that's happened since then, which is hopefully not too much. But we'll uh, we'll be back to catch you all up again on the Tez News podcast. <laughs>